Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Francisco, Azimuth World Foundation's Communications Manager. Just a quick reminder that you can watch this interview or read a transcript at azimuthworldfoundation.org insights. That's azimuthworldfoundation.org insights. According to Global Witness, three people are killed every week while trying to protect their land and their environment from extractive forces. Many are indigenous peoples whose stewardship of their territories has been key to the maintenance of balanced biodiverse ecosystems. Drilling, mining, logging, intensive agriculture, the threats are too many to count, as are the ways in which they affect these communities whose relationship to the land is often their material, cultural and spiritual backbone. Indigenous rights are not only violated by these aggressors, but also by governments who fail to implement crucial articles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, such as the right to free, prior and informed consent. More than ever, Indigenous communities need legal assistance to protect environmental defenders from unjust criminalization, to identify and take legal action against invaders, to hold aggressors responsible, and to guarantee that the laws that are supposed to protect indigenous communities are enforced and implemented. That's exactly the kind of support that EDLC, Environmental Defender Law Center, has been providing for over 20 years. EDLC finds private lawyers to work for free on the behalf of communities looking for legal assistance, but also provides resources and grants. The organization specializes in cases of international significance where innovative legal strategies can be developed and later replicated to help other environmental defenders. During this year's International Funders for Indigenous Peoples Global Conference, we crossed paths with the DLC staff attorney Fernanda Venzon, who generously shared with us extremely valuable insights from EDLC's vast global experience defending environmental defenders. It's a very difficult situation. The situation of the environmental defenders, they get attacked, uh, they get kidnapped, uh, they get jailed, and they really need uh, legal defense against cases against them, but they also need uh, to bring cases against those who attack them. You know, we, we think it's very important that uh, defenders fight back by uh, bringing complaints against judges, corrupt judges, against um, uh, prosecutors who, instead of bringing charges against the attackers, bring charges against the victims. The indigenous peoples are living in their territories and sometimes they are not aware of some of the threats. Uh, so when they find about the threats, it's, you know, the threat is already at their door. Um, and, you know, there's no not legal advice available. 
you know, some NGOs do provide that, but it's rare. Uh, so most times um, they have to count on uh, public attorneys from, uh, you know, institutions. It depends on the country. There is Defensoria del Pueblo. There is Ministerio Público in Brazil. Um, so, yeah, and they also don't have resources to pay for private lawyers. I think uh, legal advice is important and communities should uh, try to find lawyers to bring their cases because uh, it's a difficult situation to have to find resources to find a lawyer to defend themselves, but they have to do because, you know, they may, it may take years, but they may win the case and it will set a precedent for other cases and this is the only way we'll change things. One of the only ways. Defending the Defenders, the work of EDLC on emergency situations and tackling root causes. Uh, over uh, these uh, last 20 years we have uh, evolved in, in the way we, we bring cases. At first, we only brought cases defending the criminalized defenders, right? So we, we focused on the emergency situation. Uh, then we began focusing on the root causes of the attack against defenders. So we began working on land rights cases, which you know are the basis for the conflict or we began working on cases in which the construction of a dam is what is creating the problem. So how to challenge the construction of the dam? What are the human rights violations there? Uh, it could be a mine as well. Uh, it could be a, a road in the forest. And, uh, you know, we have brought many, many such cases uh, and each one brings a different lesson and I consider that every case is a success even if we don't win in court because in a way just the fact that you bring the case, you raise the awareness on this issue, it is important. In general, uh, communities and NGOs reach out to us because they need uh, help. Uh, you know, in finding lawyers or resources for the lawyers or strategic advice uh, related to the legal issues or an expert. But we also um, receive information from newsletters and colleagues. So when we learn about a situation in which we think we can help, we get in touch. We have cases arising in Latin America and cases in you know, other parts of the world. In general, it's in the global south that we work. So I work mainly on the cases uh, arising in Latin America and our director on the cases in, in other parts of the world. And for each case, um, of course, we cannot litigate ourselves on the cases. I am a Brazilian uh, attorney and I could be the attorney in charge of you know, cases uh, in Brazil only. Uh, our model is that we create a team for a case. So we find the lawyer, we hire the lawyer, the expert, uh, sometimes there is an anthropologist, and this will be the team for the case. And this way, um, you know, we keep our organization small 
and we work on, on specific cases as needed. Swedish toxic waste in Chile, one of EDLC's landmark cases. One of the, our biggest cases was a case that we brought in Sweden um, in relation to toxic waste that a Swedish company sent in the 80s to Chile. And that waste was sitting there for many years and caused a lot of illnesses and in addition to environmental contamination. And we got involved in this case because our former um, director uh, watched a documentary about it. And this documentary was uh, produced by a Swedish uh, young guy who was born in Chile but was adopted by a Swedish family. And his father worked for this firm. And he heard about that situation uh, of the waste being sent there to Chile. We moved uh, mountains to bring this case in Sweden. Uh, with um, There were eight, 800 plaintiffs, uh, but of course they were, um, they created an association of plaintiffs. Uh, and it was really challenging for an NGO like ours, which is not a huge NGO, to bring um, this case with very qualified lawyers. And we didn't win in the end in court, but this is a case in which we were able to prove that the company was wrong in the eyes of the public. There is also a, another documentary that was uh, produced about this. It's called Arica. Deforestation and climate change, holding the Brazilian government accountable. So in Brazil, um, we realized that the main uh, problem re related to climate change is deforestation. Everyone knows that it's the most important cause of greenhouse gas emissions. And then it's agriculture and cattle farming. People from Europe, for example, think it's, oh, it's coal, it's uh, energy production or transportation. But well, in Brazil, it's different, it's deforestation. And uh, in Brazil, there is a law from 2009, but it established a limit for the deforestation in the Amazon to the year 2020 and the limit in square kilometers uh, was 3,925 square kilometers. It was a calculation that was made based on an average of deforestation from previous years. But the fact is the law says the government had to reach that amount in 2020 uh, and it didn't. It was much more. Uh, so in 2020, I believe it was over 7,000, then the following year, over 10,000, and the following year, which is the last year, over 13,000. We brought a lawsuit against the Brazilian government, asking uh, the court to order the government to keep the deforestation rate at the level accepted by the legislation, or if not, to restore all the forest that was cut in excess. 
uh, and this case is pending in, before the court, um, the federal court in Curitiba. And Curitiba is in the south of Brazil, it's far from the Amazon, and you may ask, so why did you file your case in Curitiba? We filed it in the south uh, because we can file in Brazil anywhere in the, before a federal court, you can file a case when the impacts are, occur at the national level. And of course, climate change impacts affect you know, the country as a whole, and of course, uh, has no boundaries. In this case, we have obtained a very interesting decision from an appeals court, which says that our case is different than other environmental cases, because our case is an environmental case, but it's also a climate case. So in our case, the judge should apply all the legal framework related to climate change. And we have uh, requested an injunction in that case, and we are uh, waiting for a response. And uh, let me tell you why an injunction is very important in this case. Because if we don't uh, begin restoring the forest right now, and we just leave things as they are, the case could be, you know, could take many years to be um, solved and uh, ruling could take many years. So it may be impossible to restore the forest after so many years. Belmont Dam, the gap between legislation and implementation. We always cite in, in briefs that we pre present in court all of the documents of you know, from the UN, from uh, the inter-American inter system, all those, uh, you know, comments and recommendations and precedents are really relevant because sometimes the judges in, you know, a small court, in, you know, a trial court in uh, the countryside, in one of these countries, is not aware of these documents. So it is important to bring them but the main problem that I see is that sometimes the courts take too long to decide and they push the decisions for later. Uh, let me give you the example of the construction of the Belo Monte Dam in Brazil. Uh, in this case, uh, it is a dam affecting uh, at least two indigenous communities which are very close to an area that was going to be uh, dry because the river was going to be diverted. Uh, there were several cases in court and uh, the courts decided that the right to be, to be consulted would be respected in due time. Then the environmental authorities went visit the communities and they said this is just a visit, this is not a consultation. Later they claimed that the visits had been the consultation and then, when it was time for a permit to be granted to the company building the dam, the authorities um, within the government who were supposed to read the documents and analyze the documents related to consultation, they said, well, we didn't have time to read through the material. We recommend that this license not be granted. And then the head of the environmental agency just grant the license one day later. So what the courts did about that delayed that decision for many, many years. 
so it's something that needs to change. Uh, we can, even if we get the best legislation and the best documents, if they are applied too late, then you know it's just a situation in which there, you know there can be compensation, uh, remediation, but you know the rights have not been respected. Thank you for listening to Connecting the Dots, an Azimuth World Foundation podcast. Join the conversation on our website, azimuthworldfoundation.org, or by following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn.